All right. Open your Bibles, if you would. Acts chapter 2. Those who may be wondering what we always do testimonies, we're still working on the best way to do that in the new format. So if you're wondering, that hasn't gone away. It's just being researched the best way. I'm, I'm going with the idea of passing a microphone around to people so everybody could be heard. That, that sound like? I'm seeing some heads go like this and some heads going like, no way, not me. Uh -uh. So but we're considering that option we are. So Acts chapter 2. Um, we are in our third Sunday of our study of the Apostles' Creed. Again, we do that because it's part of who we are. It's part of our identity. It's part of our constitution and bylaws. It's how we identify ourselves in the community when we're asked, well, what does Gateway Christian Fellowship believe? That's at least part of our answer. The Apostles' Creed is our statement. Um, we've talked over the last few weeks that it's a document, a creedal statement produced over, oh, four centuries of discussion and debate and probably some argument too um, early in the church to answer that very question. What do Christians believe. It came uh, to the form that we have uh, sometime in the early 5th century, and it has been held uh, ever since. And, you know, given the fact that we are people, and we all have brains that function, more or less, we're, we're still going to have, you know, questions, and we're still going to have things we disagree about, and that's okay. The Apostles' Creed is intended to speak to just the essentials. It's those things that as Christians, we should all be in agreement on. Outside of that, we're, we can have all kinds of great discussion and energetic conversation. That's great. But the creed states the essentials, what we believe as followers of Christ. Now, those first two lines we looked at talked about the Father, I believe in God the Father. The second section talked about the Son, I believe in Jesus Son of our God, Son of the living God, our Savior. Now we come to the final section. And the third section is a little bit different because it starts out the same way. A very straightforward affirmation, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But then it kind of gets this sense, at least for many years as I was reading it, of like being the part that gets tacked on. Like some other stuff that maybe got left out and they kind of tacked it on. I don't, that's what, not what they did. But as I first read it for so many years. That's kind of the sense that I had, and I think we'll find that is not at all what it is. It's extremely important for us to remember and understand. And I'd like to look at it, this third part of the creed, uh, through a passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, very well-known passage. It's a description of the very, very early church. It may even be a description of the church on the very first day of the day of Pentecost. And it reads this way, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Father, we thank you for, for the occasion we have to gather, Lord. Uh, as each first day of the week we gather to celebrate the resurrection of your Son, Father. That is our hope. That is our confidence, Lord. Father, the payment for our sins in his, in his body and blood and the hope, Father, of eternity in his resurrection, that gives us great cause to gather and to celebrate. And this morning we gather around your word and we look to your word and ask that we might be instructed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the first part of the creed speaks to the Father. I believe in the Father. The second part speaks to the Son. I believe in the Son. 
And then the third part begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I think you've got, you got it up there. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. We're talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. Acts 2.42 is a description of the early church responding to the Holy Spirit. The disciples were gathered in an upper room some 50 days after the crucifixion, waiting for what Jesus had promised. And on that day, that first day of Pentecost, at least as far as the church's calendar is concerned, the Holy Spirit descended on them as Jesus had promised, and a number of things happened. If you're familiar at all with Acts chapter 2, you know this. There was a sound, an audible sound. There was the visual effect of tongues of fire appearing. They were all filled. There was some kind of an experience they all shared. They began to speak with different languages. Now the word for tongues and languages is the same word. They spoke with different languages. The people outside were amazed and asked, what does this mean? Peter stood up with the eleven, with the other disciples, and he quoted from the prophet Joel to explain what that meant. He affirmed the resurrection, and he told them that what they were seeing and what they were hearing was first and foremost evidence that Jesus was and is who he said he was and is. All of it stood as a demonstration of the resurrection, a demonstration of Jesus' identity, because he said none of this happens if Jesus isn't resurrected. So the presence of the Holy Spirit made on that first day was a demonstration of who Jesus was. He told them that in this there was a way to forgiveness and eternal life through repentance and baptism into the person of Jesus. And there was a huge response. It says thousands came forward. And that brings us to verse 42. Now verse 42 naturally reads like it was the very first day. Some have suggested that it might have been a day or two later. Really don't know. But it was extremely early in the history of the church. Quite possibly the very first day in the history of the church. And it says some things about the early church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Four things the early church did. Three of them are pretty straightforward. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They have no New Testament, right? The Bible hasn't been written yet, not the New Testament. They had the Old Testament, and they have the followers of Jesus, the apostles, who were helping them figure out what this all meant by taking the sayings of Jesus as they remembered them or perhaps even wrote them down and then coming to understand all that the Old Testament said about the Messiah and trying to put this all together. They were devoted to that process, the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Now that means two things. Communion as we just shared it. We know that was central. But they also ate most of their meals together. For many members in the early church, coming to Christ meant complete separation from every supporting element in, in their world. Family would have cut them off. If they had jobs, they would have likely lost them. They were wholly dependent on the early church for their very sustenance. And it was a part of worship to join in meals together. So they shared their meals together, and as we say, communion was part of that. Okay? And they prayed. They prayed. That was something the early church did a lot of. 
But what of that third thing they did? They had the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, communion, and prayer. But what of that fellowship that they shared? What does that word mean? It means more than just the hanging around that we do before and after church. Not that that's not important. That is so beautiful. The just hanging around that we do after a church. But this is talking about that, but it's also talking about so much more. It is quite literally the fellowship. The word the appears in the, in the original text. And that means it was something actual and specific. It was the fellowship. More than just hanging around talking. The word fellowship is the word kinonia. Many of you may be familiar with that word. And it's a really, really old word. Now, bear with me if you a little, little Greek word history here because it's important. Um, when we talk about old Greek words, we're normally talking about words that go back to Homer. Because Homer and those first poets were the first writers for whom we have a lot. Like whole sentences and paragraphs and books and stuff like Iliad and the Odyssey and all that stuff. But there is a little tiny bit of Greek that goes back even before that. It's called Linear B. How many have ever heard of it? If you're not really into it, you've never heard of it. Your life is whole and complete, right? Don't need to. But sometimes it does show up. We don't have, even, we don't have as much as a single complete sentence in it. We have mostly lists of individual words. But it goes back, now Homer goes back like to 800 B.C., right? I'd say it's old, right? Linear B goes back to like 1600 B.C. We're talking 3,500 years old, right? These are really old words. And the reason I'm saying all this, the reason I'm, I'm taking the time to talk about this is words don't just happen. Words come into a language for a reason. People need to convey an idea so they find a word to convey the idea. We learn words based on need. If you've ever been in a foreign language where they spoke no English, you found that out. What's the first word we learn? Bathroom. <laughs> where is it, right? You know how to know that, right? May not be as a very sophisticated word, but it's a necessary word, so you'll learn it quick. Words come into language for a reason. And the ones that are more essential come in earliest. This word kinonia, which is translated fellowship, comes into the language at an incredibly early time. And when it comes into the language, it is used to describe that thing that would draw people together in groups larger than simply a family. So when family groups began to gather into villages or towns or ultimately cities, that, was, that happened because of this thing called kinonia, fellowship. They were able to avoid, by and large, killing one another in these communities of unrelated people because they, it was more than just the understanding that we're better off if we don't kill one another. There was an understood need and benefit. There was a drive that drew them together. And the word grew from that understanding to every, describe every other human relationship where people are drawn together. So when we start talking about the early church, we're talking about this thing, whatever it is, 
that caused these desperate, I mean, totally different people living in and around Jerusalem, some from all over the Roman Empire. They're in Jerusalem for a Jewish festival. They suddenly, they're embracing the person of Christ, and they're finding something drawing them together. What is it? It's the Holy Spirit. It is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit living in the early church, drawing people together, and he's never stopped. It is what draws us together today. Immediately on the day of Pentecost, after the Spirit is poured out, this something draws believers together into a cooperative and identifiable community. It drew the early church together. It held the early church together through the horrors of persecution. The nightmare that was the Diocletian persecution. The Holy Spirit, the glue, if you will, that held the church together, kept them through those early centuries. And it continues to hold his church together today. Now, I say that because this extraordinary coming together of people being held together happened immediately after the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. It is the presence of the, it's the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit that created that fellowship. And not just the sense of fellowship. It's real. It's something. The presence of the Holy Spirit in the church brought the church together. So with that as a lens, let's consider these lines in the Apostles' Creed. He says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that extraordinary? The authors of the Creed introduce the person of the Holy Spirit the same way they introduce the Father and they introduce the Son. Now, I think most of us are pretty comfortable saying, well, I believe in God, yeah. right? I believe in Jesus. But can we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit with the same enthusiasm? If not, why not? He's presented the same way throughout the biblical text. He's certainly affirmed as deity in Hebrews chapter 9. He's referred to as the Holy Spirit. He's affirmed as personal. Ephesians 4.30 says do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You can only grieve something that is personal. You can't grieve an inanimate force. Sometimes people make the mistake of like comparing the Holy Spirit to an inanimate force like electricity. Try to grieve electricity. It doesn't work. You know, zap, it doesn't feel bad, right? No. No feelings at all. Totally impersonal, right? But you can grieve the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we, we say he's personal. In fact, we only say he with regards to the Holy Spirit to affirm that he's personal. Because the word that's used in the original language was actually neuter. So we should grammatically say it. But the authors of Scripture didn't want us to make that mistake. So in this kind of funky grammatical thing, they put a masculine pronoun with a word that didn't have any gender so that we would know to say he because he's personal, not because he's male, he's personal. The spirit is personal, right? And he is divine. Every, the Holy Spirit is involved in every part of our salvation. There's no part of the salvation experience that the Holy Spirit is not intimately involved with. He's the one who draws us. He's the one who convicts us of sin, makes, our, makes us conscious of our need for God. He's the one that reveals truth to us through conviction of truth. We are born again, Jesus said, by the Spirit. We're renewed, we're regenerated, 
We're made alive as believers. We are animated and kept alive by the Spirit. Simply put, there is no walk for the Christian. There's no Christian walk without the Holy Spirit. He's not like a perk or an afterthought, an option. You know, like some of the nicer cars now have that little mirror when you back up, you got the little camera in the back. Seat. That's an option, right? It's not the Holy Spirit. Not optional. Absolutely essential. So we need to at least work on becoming just as comfortable saying, I believe in, we talked about that last week, that's an investment into, that's not just a positional statement, there's motion, I'm, I'm investing myself into the person, I'm trusting myself into the person of the Holy Spirit just as much as I trust in the Father or in the Son. I know that's a little reach for us, but it requires a deliberate effort. It's absolutely Necessary. There's no walk without the Holy Spirit. And because I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Now, a bunch of, wait, wait, hold, wait, I didn't know we were a Roman Catholic Church here. We're not. We're not, okay? If you happen to be from a Roman Catholic background, do not be affirmed or offended, right? The word Catholic simply means everything means universal, right? It comes from, believe it or not, the Roman Catholic word Catholic comes from a Greek word. Those Italians never invented anything. <laughs> they stole it all from us. You know, most of those statues in Rome, they stole from us. But that's another point. We're not going to go there. <laughs> Venus de Milo. I love that statue. Milo's a Greek island. They stole it. The statue. Not the, well, they stole the island, too. Anyway, oh, i got to stop. i got to stop. The term Catholic is a Greek word that just means universal. And all it really means is this, the church everywhere. So we gather here, just as believers gathered in Myanmar or any other place you want to make, it's that statement on kind of a horizontal plane that all believers everywhere are part of the Catholic Church. Now, a good many of them identify as Roman Catholics. That just means that's the Latin part of the Catholic Church. So if somebody asks you, are you a Catholic? You can go, yeah, I am. Regardless of what church you belong to. In the same way, by the way, um, and I got a lot of mileage out, this one, out of this one. It proved helpful at times. When people would ask me, are you Orthodox? Absolutely. Now, that does not mean I attend a Greek Orthodox or Ukrainian Orthodox or Russian or Serbian. That just means I believe in right doctrine. So if, if you believe in the universal church, you can call yourself a Catholic. If you affirm the Apostles' Creed, you can call yourself an Orthodox. They're just words. They're important words because they identify who we are and what we believe. The point of the Creed is that we believe that the Church of Jesus Christ extends from east to west as far as as it takes to meet at the other end. All believers everywhere. I believe I'm part of that church. Equally true, I not only believe in the Holy Catholic or the Holy Universal Church, it's also true that I believe in the Universal Church, the communion of the saints. Now, communion just doesn't refer to that. This is the one that really stretches our imagination a little bit. I believe in the communion of the saints 
which has universally been regarded, or ever since the creed was written, is regarded as communion of all saints of all time. That means even the ones that died. Some of you have been around long enough to remember Charles Noggle. What a, great, what a great brother in the Lord he was. Charlie came to church here for many years. He passed away, I don't even want to guess, eight, ten years ago. Um, I've got to stop saying that Charlie Angle used to be a part of this church. He still is. He still is. In fact, he's got a better seat than the rest of us. Right? It's that connection between those saints who have gone on before us and those saints who will follow us. Part of a church that has no ending. It removes the time component from participation in the body of Christ. Those of us who are now will always be. I believe in that. And that is true because the Spirit of God, as it animated Charlie then, is still animating him today, even as the Spirit of God animates you and I. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. Now, this one really threw me off. My first thought is, why isn't this in the Jesus column? You know, because you have the Father, the Creator, and then we last week we looked at Jesus and all the good stuff he did, and now I come to forgiveness of sin. Why isn't that in in Jesus' column, right, in the second part. That would make sense, wouldn't it? That's like his department. Well, actually, the Spirit is as much involved in your forgiveness and mine as our Lord and Savior himself. I made reference to Hebrews 9.14, which referred to the Holy Spirit as the eternal Spirit, as a demonstration of his, of his, of his deity, of his divinity. Here's the whole verse. Here the author of Hebrews is talking about the inability of animal sacrifices and other sacrifices under the law to effectively save us from sin. The author of Hebrews writes this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse us, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That dynamic by which Jesus offered him, himself as sacrifice to his Father, however that looked, don't ask me how, I have no idea, but however that looked, when Jesus came into the presence of, of his Father with his blood and said, Father, this is the payment for their sins. They can be forgiven without any question, without any reservation, without the slightest hint of guilt to remain. My followers, my brothers and sisters, my church can be wholly cleansed by my blood. However that dynamic happened, it happened through the agency of the Holy Spirit. He offered himself through the Holy Spirit. This dynamic where Jesus presented himself, his blood, as a sacrifice to the Father was by the agency of the Holy Spirit. So there's no forgiveness of sin without the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It also talks about the resurrection of the body. Well, this one's pretty obvious. 
The first man, Adam, was formed of the dust of the ground. Then in Genesis 2-7, he said he became a living being because God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God breathed into the clay that would become Adam the breath of life. It's a fascinating coincidence of language that in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for breath and the word for spirit is the same word. I can't think of another word where those two languages parallel so closely. For for the most part, the two languages are quite different. But isn't it interesting that on that one word, they parallel one another exactly? Breath and spirit, same word. God breathed into Adam the breath, the spirit of life, and man became a living being. It happens later on in the Old Testament. Scriptures like Ezekiel 39, that incredible vision of dry bones where where the Spirit speaks to the prophet and says, prophesy to them, and they come together. And he says, prophesy again, and flesh appears upon the dry bones, but they're still dead bodies. And then we read this in verse 37, or chapter 37, verse 9. The prophet said, or the Spirit said to him, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, breathe on these slain that they may come to life. And the prophet spoke as he was directed, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. They came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So on that day, this great army arose from the dead. Because the Spirit of God animated them. Well, when that day comes that Christ returns for his own, his Spirit will, will reanimate even our dead bodies if we are not still living. Don't know how it'll happen, don't know when it'll happen, but I know the Spirit of God will do it. So eternal life is wholly dependent on the activities of the Spirit. And I believe in life everlasting. What exactly is that? Now, he just talked about, you know, resurrection, Life everlasting, what's that? Well, it's not simply what happens after Jesus returns. It's so much more than that. It's what we have right now. Life everlasting begins that moment when we open our hearts to him. When we, by faith, at the Spirit's invitation, say yes to God. John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know we remain in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. We don't have to wait for that. There is nothing anywhere in the New Testament suggests we have to wait one moment for the Spirit's presence because we, we actually wouldn't be waiting for it if we didn't already have it because we wouldn't be waiting for it if we weren't already His and we only became His because He's in us. All of which is to say He's in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We are his permanent abode. Each and every one of us indwelt by the spirit of God. That is, by definition, eternal life. Now we can debate and discuss and argue if you want what that should look like. We can have that discussion what it should sound like. We could try to describe it or define it. We can do, but what is indisputable is that he abides within each and every one of us. He dwells within us. We are his temple. 
If you don't believe that, read the Corinthian letters, and you're talking about as messed up a church as you're going to find. And he says to them, you are. Tested them twice in the first Corinthian letter, twice. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So wherever you're walking, wherever you're at in your Christian, even if you're struggling, as we all are, even if you're struggling seriously, as if we're honest, we all are, he abides. He abides. He is eternal life. We are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, the eternal Spirit. Therefore, we have eternal life starting right now. That gives us meaning and hope. It draws us together. It binds us together. And it is by His Spirit that we can honestly affirm, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic or Universal Church, take your pick. They mean the same thing. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. This is where we stand. This is what we believe. This is what draws us together. This is what holds us together. This is what encourages us and guides us. This is who we are. Father, I thank you that in your goodness to us, Lord... Father, you get, you've given us your word, Father, and by it we have the instruction that we need to walk with you. But Father, we also need to be mindful this morning to be thankful for, for the church, this body which your son purchased with his blood, and by your spirit you are building daily. Father, we thank you for the work you do in our lives individually by your spirit daily. Father, we do not live in a country like Myanmar where the kind of persecution they experience might await us around every corner, and yet, Father, it is no less true of us. We must be prepared to state clearly what we believe, if only to remind ourselves of who we are and what we believe. And so, Father, I pray that as we go through our week, Father, whether we are responding to someone who confronts us with a question, Father, whether we're responding just to the challenges, the everyday challenges that we face, Lord. Father, we're mindful that we're not so much different from the world than the externalities of our experiences. Father, our kids still get sick. Father, we have unfortunate circumstances. Father, that's not what separates us from the world. What separates us from the world, Father, is the cleansing blood of your Son, the power of the resurrection, the abiding presence of your spirit, Father, if only to remind ourselves that we might walk in the truth, Father. Help us to be mindful of these things each day this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.